You're listening to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like civics and government, the law, anthropology, and archaeology. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Dornan. On this program, we're joined by Anna Kios and Quinn Dombrowski, two of the founders of Sucho, Saving Ukrainian Cultural Heritage Online. Anna is head of the Lilly Music Library at Tufts University. Quinn is the academic technology specialist in the Division of Literatures, Cultures and Languages, and in the Library at Stanford University. Thank you all so much for joining us. I would like to start this segment talking a little bit about the different ways that you've been engaging the public. As with us, you've been very generous with doing interviews and doing talks and getting the word out. How did that figure into your whole project management plan? Did you expect that you would be getting so much press and so much attention? I certainly didn't think about it. We were so focused on websites that it it never really occurred to me that this would become such a big part of our work. I know. What do you think, Anna? Yeah. It wasn't something that we initially sat down and said, okay, we need to make sure we have somebody doing our PR for us. Maybe a week or two after when we started getting our first media request, we were like, okay, Quinn, you are going to do the PR (laughs) on top of everything else. And we have a friend, Alex Heal, he's a digital humanities specialist as well, who was kind of like, all right, here's a plan for how we do our communications. And he's actually done this kind of work with other folks in the Nimble Tense project. And so that's something that he had some experience with. But I think we are definitely still are all really learning as we go in terms of the various interviews that we're doing and like what we talk about, you know, and how to promote our project through different ways. Are you all still recruiting volunteers? Quinn, you talked about engaging elementary school students. What about students at your institutions? We definitely have students from Stanford working on this. Um, You know, we have a few plans to do data rescue hackathon kind of events. The project is constantly evolving. And while we do have probably more or less capacity um, for people doing the core archiving work, there's definitely other sub-projects that we're looking for volunteers for, especially metadata, the new digitization projects. So what we're doing is we have our general volunteer sign-up form that sort of goes onto a wait list, and we add people to the project depending on the particular sub-project needs at any given time. So if people are interested in volunteering, please go to the website and fill out that form. And as the right projects come along, we'll add more people to the group. You also mentioned earlier that you were considering writing a publication about this experience or this model. What do those communication skills look like, or how does that juggling act work? I think one of the uh, common misconceptions about this kind of work is that you have to be extremely technical to be able to do web archiving or to be able to write documentation. But in fact, it is some of our less technical volunteers who have been the most helpful, both in writing and then reviewing the documentation, because what we're trying to do is write things that more or less anyone can pick up and start to be able to do this work. Often what this involves is translating documentation that's been written for a technical audience into something written for a layperson. That's been a lot of the documentation work that we've done is kind of translation for a general audience. And then ironically, I think at some point you would want to take that playbook and translate it into multiple 
languages because if this happens in some other country and they need to do data rescue and think about data repatriation, it doesn't necessarily help them if this playbook is written in English. With the open source or open access community, that's something that other folks can also help with. It's sort of a crowdsourced effort. It doesn't have to be just us translating and rewriting the documentation. We're definitely committed to the publications coming out of this being open access because, I mean, that's how they can be the most useful. We talked earlier about how the data that you're rescuing, you're going to sort of hold and trust, hoping that the owners will come back for it. But some of the things that you're producing for this project, are you making that open source? Like you talked about a Python script that can scrape post-Soviet library catalogs. Yeah, all of our code is or will most likely be on GitHub for people to use. All of our tutorials are, are up on our website. We would like people to be able to adapt these things. I figure most likely this book that we put together will need to have a sort of technical appendix with pointers to these resources um, in case people need to tackle some of these things again. We've discovered, for instance, that the common digital repository platform DSpace is great as a digital repository in a peaceful time, but is actually very, very difficult to web archive. So I think there may be some effects of this too, um, engaging with the people who develop the tools that kind of have ended up being inadvertent roadblocks on our way to think about how to make them more accessible for this kind of work in the future. It sounds like you've been in these conversations with a lot of sort of big players in the digital archiving world because of this. Do you get the sense that they're hearing some of these concerns or that there might be a shift coming out of this in the way that people use these platforms or address security? I don't know. I mean, I think from the vendors that have created things like DSpace or some of these other more challenging platforms, I don't think we've necessarily heard from them directly. I will say we've talked with some larger organizations that are involved with archiving or rescuing artifacts during war or disasters. And in some cases, you know, it was sort of like, oh, we didn't think about the digital part of it. We were thinking about the physical part of it. So, you know, this is something that we obviously need to start thinking about. So I feel like we've been having those kinds of conversations. And what we're hoping is that, you know, we can write this playbook, we can do all this outreach and public facing work that will bring this to a larger audience so that people understand that the digital content is just as precarious and can possibly disappear just like the physical artifacts if you don't take care of it. But I think there's a lot of discussions and work that still needs to be done. I think it's the kind of thing people in any context don't think about till it happens. Then you just are pulling your hair out over the loss of the data. We think about this a lot. How much easier would this be if we had started in January? I mean, a lot of people saw the writing on the wall that something was going to happen. How much more could we have gotten a safe copy of if we could have just emailed some people and you know offered them storage space back when it wasn't hazardous to be there and to access those files and, and access things on site? The lesson here, as much as anything, is this call for more proactive approaches. Even if you're going to do an emergency response, do it when there are shadows, not when the ceiling has collapsed like boarding up the windows before the hurricane. And then if the hurricane doesn't come, okay. When I first thought about your project, at least it's finite, right? 
If you say, okay, there's X number of institutions in Ukraine, and that's some known thing, but it sounds like with moving to the next stage of providing digitization equipment and support for that to these institutions, you're opening up the possibility of creating more materials to keep safe until the war is over. I'm really curious about how you manage that in a war zone. Like, how do you do that? Part of it is we don't know yet. That said, the war provides a certain motivation and urgency where you can get large corporations to step up and go as far as they can for Ukrainian librarians in a war in a way that you probably can't, although you probably should be able to get those resources in northern New Mexico as well. But the urgency, the visibility in the news, the desire to sort of do something in response to that does provide some motivation to try to think creatively and find solutions um, in a way that you might otherwise just give up when it gets hard. The plan in principle is to get these materials shipped to the Polish border and then work with people who already have channels on the ground through humanitarian corridors, through vans with other supplies to get them to central places that can then be distributed further one of the sort of advantages of having waited two months into the war to start doing this rather than in the beginning is some of those channels are more established. Some of the organizations doing relief work on the ground kind of have processes in place in a way that they didn't even a month ago. And so we're hoping to build on that extensive and very difficult work that's already been done on the ground. When you say that they're taking actual stuff and moving it through these corridors, what kind of stuff are we talking about? So we have a group that we literally just formed yesterday, um, you know, trying to think through what are the best approaches to digitization equipment under these circumstances, um, depending on what people want to do. Are we talking artworks? Are we talking small ceramic things? Are we talking books? Are we talking documents? So our goal is to sort of come up with like a standard kind of setup and write tutorials and have those translated into Ukrainian for those different kinds of objects that each require a different kind of digitization work. Just so that I can be clear in my mind, so rather than trying to get digitization equipment to where this stuff is in Ukraine, given that things are sketchy there in some ways, in some places, you're trying to get the materials out of the country. Yes. So that way the archivists and librarians who are willing to scan and digitize content can do so in their own institutions. And that might mean scanners or cameras and also, like you were saying, Quinn, tutorials and resources. And, you know, if I'm going to try to take pictures of all these ceramics in my collection, what's a good way to go about that? And then get it uploaded to your guys' repositories, I presume, right? That's the sort of end goal. Or anywhere else they want to put it. I mean, we're offering this as an easy bit of infrastructure, but if they want to just hold on to this stuff on flash drives or if they want to put them on their own sites already, we don't want to you know, make any claim to this data, just supporting them and, and you know, with a set of options that may be useful. I can't believe how fast you guys got this off the ground. A lot of projects, it takes two months just to figure out, you know, sort of like... When you're going to have a meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is partly why we did this as a unaffiliated or non-affiliated group, right? So you could be nimble. Exactly. You mentioned the nimble tents before, and I followed some links from the sucho.org site to the nimble tent site and the whole model of rapid response research. Can you all speak a little bit about what that is? 
I think the website, the Nimble Tense website does a really great job going into it much more in depth than maybe I can do. But I have been involved in some of these efforts myself, not to the scale I am now with Sucho. But it's a similar idea that when there's some kind of a crisis, whether it's a war or whether it's some kind of natural disaster or something, that people in the technology, the library, museum sector can come together and quickly create some kind of a strategy and a plan to address, okay, how are we going to help with saving the data or saving the images or saving the content that is online? One of the projects that I worked on very briefly was a couple of years ago now during ACH, actually, one of our conferences in the summer in Puerto Rico, when it was basically a political kind of upheaval. And so we worked together with a few different people during that conference. We just said, okay, let's do this quick, nimble, tense solution where we are going to scrape and archive as much information from newspapers about the events so that we can have this proof of, okay, what's going on in case this information goes missing, but also to give people access to know what is actually going on in current events in their home country. So it's that sort of quick reaction to an issue or disaster. And this is increasingly a movement within digital humanities to not only you know apply digital tools and methods to academic research questions, but to really be involved in issues of the day and putting the technical skills and the commitment to the humanities and all it represents to work in these contexts. And I've been really grateful to Alex Heal and others who have done these efforts before, who have joined our Slack and have been offering tips and advice and support on multiple levels. It's something we've really been able to build on the experiences learned in those previous efforts. Anna Quinn, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to talk with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And if you would like more information about their work, you can visit the website sucho.org. That's S-U-C-H-O dot org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum.